Welcome to another season of the Resilient Surgeon Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to inspiring cardiothoracic surgeons to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven strategies and tools from the world's top scientists, thought leaders, and performers. On today's show, I'm talking with Dr. Sachin Panda, Professor of Regulatory Biology at the Salk Institute for Biologic Studies in San Diego, California, and the author of The Circadian Code. And our topic is circadian biology and time-restricted eating, and how our modern society and lifestyle are in a life-or-death battle with our biology and how the modern lifestyle is actually winning this battle. I believe this interview may be one of the most important ones I have done on the Resilient Surgeon podcast, as the impact of ignoring our circadian rhythms in biology has such profound negative effects on all aspects of our lives, on our mental health, including mood, anxiety, depression, and on our physical health, including metabolic syndrome and other chronic diseases, such as diabetes and cancer. And Dr. Panda is the person to help us learn about this vital topic, as he is world famous for his work on circadian rhythms and biology as a result of his laboratory's groundbreaking discoveries, including the discovery of the specialized blue light sensing cells in our retinas that produce melanopsin, the molecule that regulates our circadian clock, sleep, and alertness, and the finding that we have hundreds to thousands of genes in our genome in all cells of the body that turn on and off in different organs at specific times during each 24-hour day. And finally, the revolutionary finding that confining one's eating during the day to an 8-12 to 12 hour window, as people did a century ago, can profoundly impact our metabolic, mental, and physical health. But it's not just Dr. Panda's incredible work and contributions to our common good that is so remarkable. It is also his amazing kindness and humility that make him such an incredibly special person. And I'm so grateful that he was willing to take precious time out of his very busy schedule to be with us today. So get your pencils and pens out since I'm confident you will want to take notes. Sachin, welcome and thank you so much for joining me and my colleagues today on the Resilient Surgeon podcast. It's really an honor and a delight to have you as our guest. I'm really happy to be on your podcast. Thank you. You know, I thought it would be great to start with a bit of your personal story, and especially the lovely story about you as a child in India, where you describe your two sets of uh, grandparents, one maternal and one uh, paternal, and your experience and the different experience you had with the two sets of grandparents and how that influenced your, your apparently your entire career and future. Especially, you, you mentioned the word your grandfather said, if you could just crack the code of nature. And I thought if you could explain that and in, in your experience, because it really is a perfect entry into this whole topic. Yeah, so thank you for asking me that. Um, you know, we get imprinted with uh, small experiences when you're a child mm-hmm. or a young adult. So this is something in retrospect, it kind of makes a lot of sense. So I grew up um, very close to my maternal grandfather, uh, who was working in Indian Railway. Um, and as part of his work, sometimes he had to do night shift work. Uh, he would leave somewhere between 9 and 10 in the evening and would come back um, between 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning. And I always consider that somebody to stay awake throughout the night and doing work, she was, he was kind of my hero. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was very close to him. Um, and then conversely, during the summer break, I would go visit my uh, paternal grandparents who lived in a village. And they were essentially farmers. Um, there was a big... Um, backyard with a garden and a vegetable garden and also a fish pond and then they uh, they raised grains in nearby fields and they had very limited access to electrical lighting i remember actually without electrical lighting with my uh, paternal grandparents house and uh, there the life was very different um, everything was predictable and non schedule with nature so that means uh, people would wake up very close to 
dawn in the morning and then my uh, grandfather and then my uncle and then few um, people who go to the field, they would um, go to the field and then the late afternoon they would come back and then we'd have lunch. And um, so the day goes on, but in the evening, as soon as the um, sun goes down, there was actually not too much light. We had, you know, in those old days, those lanterns and maybe uh, some storm lights and candles, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, so everybody would go to bed by 9 or 9.30 in the evening. And um, I still remember, I had the, even till now, mm -hmm. when I go back to my uh, uh, paternal yeah, grandparents' yeah. house, yeah. I get the best sleep there. Although they do have electricity <laughs> now, but then the rooms are very different. They are almost light tight. There is no light pollution, so I get very restorative sleep. Yeah. So now, um, after I grew up, I realized that um, once everybody grows older, my uh, maternal grandfather retired from his job. And then uh, soon after, he actually was diagnosed with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and he passed away at the age of 74, um, which is relatively young, I consider. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, he had access to the best um, health care because he actually got the health care from this in the city and also the Indian Railway had a pretty good pension. Uh, whereas my paternal grandfather, he never had, he never took any uh, vitamin supplements and didn't have much access to any health care. He was living in a remote village. Uh, most of his food came from the backyard. And I remember his, him telling me that the only thing he bought was salt and sugar from outside. Everything, mm -hmm. Everything else he grew. He grew. Yeah. And uh, to my surprise, he actually had a pretty long, healthy life and lived almost up to the age of 88. And uh, even until the end, he had intact uh, cognition. Um, so that was really surprising to see uh, my one grandfather, <laughs> whom I considered mm -hmm. hero because he would stay awake and do the work. Um, and had access to better health care, uh, did not live that long, whereas my other grandfather, who lived in rhythm with uh, nature, uh, actually lived a very long, relatively healthy life with very few or no uh, really serious health issues. So that kind of triggered my query about why is this? And later on in college, when I learned about circadian rhythm, then I could relate. Maybe that, that was the reason. Uh, one grandfather was uh, breaking his circadian rhythm, or the job right. was breaking his circadian rhythm, and then the other one was not. So that led to my um, interest in what I call the biology of time, because how our body keeps track of time and how everything in our body is designed and, and to be on a schedule is really amazing and it still amazes me oh it, it is amazing and believe me i'm running around I'm, I'm almost running down the streets telling people about this because yeah. your discoveries are so so profound uh, honestly so you know the uh so that piece leads nicely into if you could paint a picture for us of how we used to live even a hundred years ago or a couple of thousand years ago and how that has changed in the modern world, you know? And one of the things I love about what you've introduced is this idea of a circadian lifestyle. But I thought it would be good to paint the picture really of what your paternal grandfather did, but how that was present in the past. And then what is going on now in our modern world and highlighting the notion of an erratic versus a circadian lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, actually, when you think about on a very broad sense, uh, what makes us human or why we're a different, very unique species, I always think that the very initial event in, in our evolutionary history that distinguishes us from other species is the controlled use of fire. Mm -hmm. We are the only species who can control fire. We can decide when to light a fire. We can contain it and we can make use of fire to cook and to light up our surrounding. So that happened almost uh, 200,000 years ago. Um, 
But the control use of fire was very limited because our ancestors, um, they lived uh, in tune with uh, day and night cycle because fire was very expensive to most people. Even after the up to 1700 and 1800s, uh, even after electricity or gas light was invented and deployed um, in 19th century, mid 19th century, uh, for an average British family to light up the evening for three to four hours for three to four rooms would cost almost one week of their earnings. Uh, sort of expensive. So extremely expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't even think one about week it. of earnings. I mean, you just have to digest that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's why light was expensive um, and people could not afford to stay awake late into the night. And they would wake up around daybreak and um, go to their work. And throughout the day, there was a lot of outdoor activity because even building a house was expensive. Even if you can build it to keep it warm and cold at the right time of the uh, year was also expensive. So if you go back to um, buildings built in uh, prior to 19th century, they were not that big. So people spend a lot of time outdoor, exposed to a lot of natural light, and there were a lot of physical activity, and food was very scarce. So um, people had to uh, hunt or gather food, or even if they had some grain, uh, then lighting a fire and cooking it was also not that easy because you have to uh, light a fire and uh, cook, and those grains were not also easy to cook. So in that way, uh, our ancestors had very uh, difficult, very different kind of life, um, and they were in sync with day and night cycle. In the evening, uh, what is interesting is fire actually did not extend our day, but actually created a different um, life and culture in the evening. So that right. means uh, in the evening when people gathered around fire, then they would discuss different set of stuff, uh, they will discuss culture, politics, performing arts, and philosophy. Uh, so the cradle of modern human civilization actually uh, goes back to what our ancestors did around the uh, fire. Oh, that's fascinating. So literally, you know, the the night is for our, in a sense, for our intellectual advancement yeah. really sort of started there, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And if we think about it, um, that's why we are so uh, addicted to staying awake in the <laughs> evening and doing this, because those are some of the stuff that distinguishes um, our time spent for to make a um, make earning for a living uh, versus our intellectual and emotional health, what we discuss mm -hmm. and how we took care of our uh, family and friends. Then another thing is staying awake in the night is actually a way to create wealth. So for example, uh, in the old days, the only people who actually stayed awake late into the night were the explorers who explored different, uh, different mm -hmm. new countries, the island, etc. They navigated through uh, stars. Then the <laughs> police who, who kept a watch on the wealth yeah. of the society. Mm -hmm. And the thieves who wanted to steal stuff and create <laughs> in a very simplistic way. And the, now, the old shift workers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. those yeah. are the old shift workers. But then yeah. after the Industrial Revolution, it became very clear that to, uh, the machines were doing most of the work. And the only thing that we needed to do was to keep the machines working throughout the night. And that created wealth. So that's why the modern shift work actually relates to keeping the industrial revolution going by keeping the machines working throughout the night. But of course, with that, um, the commerce came, the nighttime commerce came, and also it became very imperative that uh, we have to offer healthcare uh, whenever people need it. So that's why uh, physicians, nurses, and emergency responders, uh, they also became shift workers to stay awake at night and give services. So in that way, um, staying awake late into the night became synonymous with um, living a prosperous life, mm -hmm. making money and 
staying wealthy. Mm -hmm. And the wealth of the nation, if you really look at the nighttime picture of our planet from the International Space Station, it becomes very clear that the more lighted a nation is, the more wealth the nation has. So that correlates with the map of wealth. Yeah, actually yeah. there is a thesis, uh, <laughs> PhD thesis from someone in Colorado who actually mapped the increase in light intensity from 1971 till now in different countries. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, taken from satellite images from 1971 onwards and going back to the uh, GDP of respective nations. And then there is a nice linear How correlation between these two uh, for some time. Like, for example, for the US, US was already electrified very uh, well um, by late 70s. So you don't see that correlation with in the US. But for other countries like India, China, Argentina, Brazil, South Korea, etc., you can see clear. So that's why we are now in a society where we have almost institutionalized this notion that you have to break your circadian rhythm to stay awake late into the night to do well in your life. In your <laughs> Whatever. life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> economically do well in your life um, to hustle and work yeah yeah and yeah. we did that all of these we uh, the industrial revolution and staying awake late into the night doing all of this stuff we did without knowing the importance of circadian rhythm on our health and uh, so now we are kind of living in a society where we just realize that uh, circadian rhythms are important uh, but at the same time, we are figuring out, we also realize that breaking our normal circadian rhythm is also essential. So this creates a paradox for us, like how do we manage um, to nurture our circadian rhythm for long-term health and at the same time carry out our uh, work? Uh, so, for example, we cannot uh, stop shift work because nearly one in five working adults in this country uh, is a shift worker. 20%. 20 20% of working yeah. adults is shift worker. And those are really the heroes of the society because they are the doctors, pilots, astronauts, firefighters, mm -hmm. long distance truck drivers, um, many people in service industry. And in fact, from morning to evening, if we just pay a little bit of attention that there is not even a single hour in our day we can we can live without the sacrifice and contribution and work of shift worker. For example, in old days, yeah. So, so they are essential. And uh, then another thing that is happening is since we are all addicted to <laughs> fireside chat, <laughs> which has now converted to streaming services in the evening or 24 hours, then uh, those who are not shift worker, they are also staying awake late into the night to binge on this entertainment. And then uh, we also have uh, what we call uh, social jet lag, which means at least there is a sizable portion of our society. We tend to cherish with societal Norm. So we go visit our friends or invite our friends or get together in the weekend and stay awake past midnight. And that way we also disrupt our circadian rhythm or sleep-wake cycle for at least two to three days in a week, which is enough, which is similar to uh, working in shift. Then we have spouses and family members of shift workers who are also affected by the shift work schedule of the, of, of the significant other. Uh, so what I call secondhand shift work. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's then, brilliant. Yeah. Then we also have almost all high school students and college students these days uh, living the life of shift worker because uh, during the pandemic, what happened was uh, we all moved into digital learning. And in digital learning, the default time to submit your homework is midnight. Mm -hmm. So as a result, now the your school or college doesn't end at five o'clock or six o'clock in the evening it actually ends at midnight mm -hmm. 
So students are staying awake, finishing their homework and submitting them at midnight and then staying awake for another hour to uh, kind of rewind and, and relax before they go to bed. So now we have institutionalized circadian disruption among young adults uh, who are going to uh, live the rest of their life with that bad habit. So now the question is, OK, so if we if we are doing this, then what are the consequences? Well, it's not that shift work or staying awake for a few extra nights is going to kill you right away, but it's kind of a slow poison. Because it disrupts the function of almost every organ, every cell and disrupts the normal functioning of our brain. Uh, which will increase the risk for many uh, diseases that can compromise our physical, emotional and intellectual fitness. So that's the biggest. Uh, problem now. And so what is happening is a progress in healthcare, particularly um, to prevent, manage and cure infectious diseases uh, has lengthened our lifespan. Um, so now we are living almost to the age of 80 years uh, in the US, whereas 100 years ago it used to be 45 years. Uh, but the circadian disruption and the resulting increased risk for diseases are essentially causing us to stay, to live nearly half of our life living with chronic disease. Chronic that disease. Compromises, yes. yeah, that compromises our health, reduces the quality of life, and also reduces productivity. Sachin, what, what is, the, in a nutshell, what is the data on shift workers in terms of the impact of that on their lives? Uh, both in mortality and chronic diseases. I mean, that's well studied, you know, that, that these yeah. folks have a much higher risk. And it's just, just as kind of a baseline piece of information here. Yeah, so shift workers um, have also given us very important data on what is the consequence of long-term circadian rhythm disruption. Um, and many studies have found almost every type of disease risk goes up among shift workers. Starting with uh, digestive system, they are more likely to have gastrointestinal disorders, and they are also likely they are also at a higher risk for IBD, uh, and as well as uh, gastrointestinal different types of cancer that affects gastrointestinal system. Um, then among women, uh, the longest uh, running nurses health study has also found that uh, women who are doing uh, shift work for several years are at a high risk for breast cancer and endometrial cancer. And then for males, there are different types of cancers whose risk also go up with shift work. And the data is so alarming that the World Health Organization has categorized shift work mm -hmm. as a potential carcinogen. And this is um, the same level as some of the chemicals that are known to cause cancer. So that itself is very alarming. Yeah. Then what we know among firefighters, firefighters do the full-time uh, firefighters. They typically work in 24-hour shift. Nearly 70% of firefighters, uh, career firefighters in the U.S. do 24-hour shift. And in a typical uh, day, they may be responding to um, six to 10 calls during the night. And in fact, every second in the U.S., there is a fire truck rolling out of a fire station to respond to an emergency. Every so second. Every second. Wow, God. <laughs> Somewhere in the US, there is one fire truck rolling out. <laughs> wow. And uh, there are also more number of calls, but you know what happens is in the fire station, um, as soon as the 911 call comes and then it's uh, routed to a specific fire station, Almost all firefighters wake up to that uh, siren or the alarm. And then only one team, which is assigned to a specific uh, truck, they actually get into the truck and roll out. But everybody else in the fire station actually awake has to wake up. Like, deal with so it. Yeah. that happens many times in a night. And so firefighters, actually the number one cause for death or disability on job is not fighting fire, it's actually cardiovascular disease, whether it's a heart attack or stroke. This is also, again, alarming that firefighters, whom we think may be 
getting injured from fire, um, they're actually the number one cause for death or disability is heart disease. Is, is that, wow. So, so that happens. Um, and besides, there are also more incidences of depression, anxiety, and affective disorders among firefighters. Um, among ship workers in general, there are mm -hmm. many, mm -hmm. many reasons for that. And people always think that maybe they don't have access to a strong social support system because they're essentially resting when everybody else is awake. That may be contributing to it, but at the same time, in controlled studies in laboratory, we are also finding that shift work-like lifestyle when simulated in lab condition, it also compromises emotional and intellectual health. Mm -hmm. So um, these are all pointing to um, systemic disruption of our physiology, metabolism, and behavior when we disrupt our circadian rhythm by either staying awake late into the night or even uh, eating randomly at random time of the day or night. Yeah, which we're going to get into. This is amazing. And I, I have to admit, um, you know, there was a time, I mean, of course, having gone through surgical residency in, quote, the old days, but it still persists. They work very hard and they're up late. Uh, and the amount of sleep deprivation that we had. I mean, I used to think that, you know, these circadian rhythm things and all that, basically the only importance of it was when I flew somewhere overseas, you know, that, yeah. that you know, okay, we got to figure that out. I got to take some melatonin or something. But once we really under, once you really understand the circadian biology and what's going on now, thanks in large measure to you and of course others, uh, it's really eye-opening. And I think because I suspect that many of our listeners are not really familiar with the circadian biology of our bodies, uh, I thought it would be very useful to get a little primer from you mm -hmm. on circadian biology. Uh, and in particular, you know, I don't, I mean, I know about, you know, melatonin and, you know, super chiasmatic nucleus, and I suspect most of our surgeon colleagues and people listening do, but I don't think they know about the, you know, the melanopsin producing cells and what the broad implications of the, uh, that system is, you know, the super chiasmatic nucleus. But then also the key thing here is, you know, that all of our, as I've learned from you, all of our cells in our body have clocks. It's not just a super chiasmatic nucleus. So if you could cover those two things in a nutshell, yeah. if it's possible, and then also kind of help me understand and our listeners understand the distinction between the two and, and what interface or how do they work together, you know, in this yeah. process. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the, uh, the science behind it. Um, so for a very long time, um, and it goes back to almost 60s and 70s, since then we know that in mammals, so that means mice, rats, hamster, humans, uh -huh. uh, non-human primates, etc. Um, there is a master circadian oscillator. Um, that means this part of the brain is absolutely essential for our daily um, sleep-wake cycle. And this part of the brain uh, is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Um, because this is a small, very well-defined area of the brain consisting of roughly 20,000 neurons that sit right above the optic chiasma and hence the name suprachiasmatic nucleus. But just, and, let's just focus on that. Tw yeah. Just 20,000 neurons. Just 20,000 right. neurons. That's amazing. That's, I mean, the brain has 100 billion neurons, right? Yeah. Roughly, you know, something yeah. like that. And, yeah. and this baby of just 20 grand neurons yeah is responsible for so much, right? Yeah. I mean, responsible for so much. And um, the, the key experiments that were done to establish the, uh, its role is someone uh, who was trying to, in, in 60s and 70s, people are trying to figure out what part of the brain is responsible for what. And the best way to do that was to take an experimental animal, whether it's a rat or a mouse or hamster, and then systematically, take out a small part of the brain and figuring out what is wrong with the animal. And when researchers took out this very small part of the hypothalamus um, called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, they found that these animals, hamsters and rats, they could not go to sleep and wake up in a 24 hours rhythm. Rather, they um, 
went to sleep and woke up in every two to three hours. And um, that was one part of the puzzle. But then the I think the key experiment that was done mm. in 70s was with a mutant hamster. Uh, so this mutant hamster had a clock that was running too fast. So if you put these hamsters in constant darkness, then uh, typically a normal hamster has a near 24 hours rhythm. So in every 24 hours, the hamster will wake up and go to sleep. And this mutant hamster had a shorter rhythm. So in every 20 or 22 hours, uh, the hamster would wake up and go to sleep. And this happens only in constant darkness when there is no input from light. And the experiment was very simple. They removed the suprachiasmatic nucleus from both the mutant and then the normal hamster, and both hamsters became what we call arrhythmic. So that means at random time of the day or night, in every two to three hours, they would wake up and go to sleep. But the most important experiment was to do the brain transplant. <laughs> so they, really? they, they took the mutant SCN, suprachiasmatic nucleus, and stuck it into the brain of the uh, normal hamster and vice versa. And just by transferring this suprachiasmatic nucleus between animals, they could make the mutant hamster run on a 24 hours rhythm and then yeah. the normal hamster gained a 22 hours rhythm. And this is a very clear example of um, uh, sufficiency uh, of a specific brain region in driving these rhythms. So that established the key role of suprachiasmatic nucleus in driving all these rhythms. But at the same time, it kind of implanted a wrong notion that uh, all our circadian rhythms are encoded in these 20,000 neurons and nothing else is important. It um, all emanated from there. It was the Yeah, the so idea, that, right? that, that experiment essentially implied that, although it did not explicitly state that. Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> And people took that implication and ran with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then um, there was another um, conundrum that started maybe from 1920s when um, a student in Harvard uh, figured out that he had some blind mice. And these blind mice, to his surprise, uh, could not, I mean, these blind mice could not see but then these blind mice could maintain their circadian rhythm and stay in a 24 hour rhythm. And why this was surprising was mice typically have a rhythm, a circadian rhythm of 23 hours, 45 minutes. That means if you stick them in constant darkness when there is no light, they will wake up 15 minutes early every single day. So they mm -hmm. drift um, slightly. And um, when you put them in light dark cycle, then they will maintain 24 hours rhythm. And if you give them a jet lag by changing their light-dark cycle, they will also readjust to the new light-dark cycle in a week or two. Hmm. Um, and normal mice do that, but he discovered that this blind mice who cannot see could also do the same thing without, as if they can sense light. So that mystery was going on for almost 75 years. And at the turn of the century, when all the human genome, mouse genome, all the genomes were done, um, then people found that there is another opsin, or rhodopsin or conopsin, those give us view of the of our surrounding world. Another opsin like molecule. In the, re in the retina, you're you're talking about opsins in the retina. Yeah, opsins in the retina. Yeah. So these are yeah. the rod and cone opsins that our right. retina has. Um, and rod and cone opsins are present in almost 17 million to 20 million rod and cone cells. And, um, but surprisingly, what scientists, particularly uh, pioneering initial work by Iggy Provencio at the University of Virginia, um, he found that this melanopsin is present in only few hundred to few thousand neurons in mouse and human retina. And these were not present in the same rod and cone cells, but present in what is called ganglion cells. So that means rod and cone cells actually collect light information, pass that light information through two or three layers of cells to retinal ganglion cells. And these cells send projections or actions to the brain to carry this light information into the brain. And 
this melanopsin is found somewhere between two to 5,000 of those retinal ganglion cells. And when, at that time, when I was starting my postdoctoral research, um, I was fortunate enough to be part of three different independent groups who simultaneously demonstrated the role of this melanopsin in entraining the suprachiasmatic nuclear circadian clock with the ambient light dark cycle. So that means these cells in the retina, they can directly sense light, particularly in the blue spectrum of light, and they need slightly higher level of light than rod and cone cells, uh, rod cells particularly, and then they send that information um, monosynaptically. That means they're directly connected to the master circadian clock neurons in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So that explained how light dark cycle entrains our circadian rhythm. In blind mice, right? I mean, the blind mice, uh, yeah. those who have lost rod and cone cells, they still have this melanopsin ganglion cells. So, so that explains intact. why yeah. those blind mice yeah. could entrain that yeah. clock. Yeah. And just to be uh, clear, so we've got ganglion cells with melanopsin. The rod and cone cells have different opsins that are there to help transmit that information to the brain. Do those yeah, so go the to rod the and, we use our rod and cone cells. Yeah, so for example, those who are uh, watching us <laughs> <laughs> they're using their rod and cone cells to watch this video or read. Um, uh, they're not actually using melanopsin cells and uh, to to read or to do any right. usual visual task that we do. Um, but these melanopsin cells are very few, only, again, maximum 5,000 cells. Again, you know, staggering, are, such a small number of cells. Very small number of cells. System. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then coming back to another big discovery that happened uh, toward the turn of the century, again, between 1997 and 2002, during that time, um, people studying circadian rhythm in many organisms, for example, in mice, uh, drosophila, fruit flies, uh, mm -hmm. and rats, uh, they also made an important discovery that um, by that time we knew, we, scientists had come to know what are the circadian clock genes, and in fact, the circadian rhythms are regulated by circadian clocks that are cons that consist of um, a dozen of different genes, and these genes turn on and off with a 24-hour rhythm. So that means if we can just measure uh, these genes or what they produce, then we can figure out how the clock works. And surprisingly, these clock genes were found in almost every part of the brain and body. Um, so that essentially challenged the notion that the master circadian clock that we considered is present in the SCN does everything. And um, also people did very systematic study and found that even if you take a little bit of skin cells or fibroblasts from humans or mice or rats and culture them in this, then those fibroblasts still have robust circadian rhythm that will continue God, in this culture for, for weeks, months, and even years. They will, as long as you keep the cell uh, healthy and happy, these uh, rhythms will continue. And this, this was uh, simultaneously again found in all organisms and even in, as I mentioned, in human fibroblast. So that changed our uh, notion of what is clock, and what they do, because if they're present in every cell, then what do they do? So that led to the next chapter in circadian rhythm research. Then the question was, well, for example, um, if melatonin, for example, you mentioned is produced from the pineal gland and uh, the melatonin hormone production essentially means that there must be genes that make melatonin and process it and excrete it to circulation. And those genes must be turning on and off at different time of the day and night. And uh, for that, for this gene activity to go up and down with 24 hours, the clock in the pineal cells actually drive that rhythms. Not, the, this, not the neurologic input? And the neurologic input from, because if we take the pineal gland from mouse, rats or even chicken and culture them in tissue culture, those pineal gland or those pineal cells will still continue to produce melatonin 
in a cyclic manner. The only thing is the SCN clock sends information to the pineal to produce the rhythm at the appropriate time or the phase of the rhythm. So that means um, the clock in the SCN essentially uses different uh, messages. It's almost like a master conductor of an orchestra that doesn't yeah, directly yeah, yeah. Yeah. produce the music, but it actually uh, synchronizes them. So that is one example, but um, subsequently it became very clear that almost every hormone in our body has a circadian rhythm. Um, that means almost every hormone that you can think of uh, has a preferred time when it is produced more. And at another time, it's not produced to that extent. And melatonin is kind of a uh, unique hormone because the only thing that affects its production are the circadian clock and the light-dark cycle. It's not influenced by um, food, stress, and other stuff that usually affect the production and rhythm in other hormones like insulin, leptin, ghrelin. Right. Um, right. Those are strongly influenced by our cortisol, those are strongly influenced by stress or food. So having seen that, then the question was, well, if we go and look at liver, because we know that liver has a circadian rhythm and liver uh, function, many aspects of liver function are circadian. So again, around the same time in early 2000s, um, many labs, including when I was a postdoc, we did very simple experiment. We asked we kind of went on a fishing expedition. Yeah, this is this is really the great part here. This discovery. I mean, it's just so stunning. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. So, Please. So, <laughs> yeah. So we just asked a very simple question. Okay. So what are the genes that are turning on and off in liver? And we found, even at that time, with uh, limited technology, where we could interrogate only six thousand to seven thousand genes or gene products out of roughly twenty-two thousand genes in mice. We found that 300 to 400 genes actually turn on and off with a circadian rhythm. And then when we mapped back, what do these genes do? We figured out that these genes are actually involved in glucose metabolism. They are involved in making glycogen and storing them or breaking down glycogen and fatty acid synthesis in liver or breaking down fat or beta oxidation in liver and also breaking down xenobiotics or um, many unwanted materials that we eat, those are broken down um, in liver. Even cholesterol is broken down by cytochrome P450 class of enzymes, and those are also circadian. So it was really surprising to put all these circadian regulated genes on a biochemical pathway chart and finding that almost every rate limiting enzymes in biochemistry that we had learned of seem to have a circadian component. Now, I, I, I hate to interrupt you, but you said, and I was thinking about this question because you said rate limiting enzymes, and I was wondering, are the enzymes that are clocked on the clock, so to speak, are they are the ones that are kind of controlling the central controlling enzymes of the metabolic process? Like I forget in glycogenesis, or gly, or glycolysis, you know, there's a key yeah. enzyme. Yeah. So they, there's regulatory enzymes all over. So you're saying that these are the regulatory enzymes that are affected by this clock. Yeah. So for example, for cholesterol biosynthesis, HMG-CoA reductase, which is right. target of statin, that also has a circadian rhythm. And for the degradation of cholesterol, there are many different, uh, there are 20, 25 different genes involved. But one of the genes towards the end is uh, cytochrome P450, CYP7A1 okay. in mice. And that one is strongly circadian deregulated. And that breaks down cholesterol and subsequently to bile acid. So the bile acid production uh, seems to be circadian. Um, so that initial study in 2002 kind of started uh, subsequent studies to look at circadian rhythm not only in liver, but heart, kidney, and all types of cells, all types of tissues. Uh, and it's still going on. <laughs> and what we're finding is almost, it's it's uh, safe to say that nearly all genes in human genome is uh, circadianly regulated in at least one tissue. Um, so that means, uh, for example, when I say HMG-CoA reductase, which is involved in cholesterol biosynthesis, 
it may be circadianly modulated in the liver. It may not be modulated in kidney or other cells, but at least in one tissue it is. Modulated. I see. Mm-hmm. So that's then the question is well, uh, what are the different circadian physiology that may be controlled? So, for example, in in the stomach, we know that the digestion of food is strongly circadian, including the production of acid and neutralization of acid by our saliva. So for example, our saliva production has a circadian rhythm. Our saliva production should slow down and stop when we go to sleep, otherwise we'd be drowning in saliva. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But at the same time, the saliva serves another purpose, that is when there is excessive acid from our stomach and it comes up to the esophagus, then saliva can neutralize that. So um, the uh, the implication is when we have circadian rhythm disruption, then the saliva production may be stopped or the acid production may be higher, so that can lead to acid reflux or heartburn. Similarly, our small intestine also has peristaltic motion to move semi-digested food, and that peristaltic motion is circadian. So that means when we have circadian disruption, or for example, if we eat very late at night, we may be eating, but it's not being digested because of the circadian rhythm and digestion kind of slows down late at night. So similarly, we can go to different organs and we can find various aspects of circadian rhythm that is directly relevant to um, health and wellness. And even sometimes it may explain some of the adverse effects of some of the treatments. Mm-hmm. For example, a few years ago, we discovered that um, even our hair follicles have circadian rhythms. And in retrospect, it makes sense because our skin and hair, they're all exposed to direct sunlight that has UV light that can damage our DNA. Mm-hmm. So as a result, our skin cells and hair follicle cells have a circadian rhythm to regulate cell division, uh, mostly at night time. So the, the single-stranded DNA during cell division um, may be exposed, but yeah. there is no UV light. Yeah. So the offset is we did a very simple experiment. We, t- we took mice and then irradiated them with the same dose of radiation that is given to many cancer patients who are going through radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And if we give this irradiation in the beginning of the day, so that means before 10 o'clock in the morning, so these mice are um, staying in uh, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. is their daytime and nighttime is 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So if we get them irradiation in the morning, then they lost um, nearly 70 to 80% of their skin hair, their fur, and they received the same dose at eight o'clock in the night, they actually retained 80% of the hair. Seriously? So My that was day, day and night difference. So this was so profound, <laughs> we had to go back and redo the experiment. With I can imagine, I mean, geez. Make sure that the radiation- <laughs> So stunning. Was working. Uh, but the funny thing, but the interesting thing is if we took mice that did not have a circadian clock, then they lost hair irrespective of no what time when. the radiation was yeah. given. Yeah. Uh, so this was so profound that it was actually highlighted in the National Cancer Institute's uh, newsletter. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so similarly, now we are finding that uh, there is a new concept called chronotherapy. That means almost all types of treatment we can think of might have a better time of the day when the medication, radiation, or even surgery or vaccination um, work better than other time of the day. That's fascinating. So this is potentially an explosive area of of, uh, biology in the future and for clinicians and the impact that it may have. Yeah, Yeah, so hopefully this will translate to clinical practice because uh, for example, uh, chemotherapy for breast cancer uh, there are certain uh, chemotherapeutic agents that work much better in the morning and some others work better in the afternoon. And those studies were done in mid-80s, but still it has not yeah. <laughs> come down to yeah. practice because of obvious scheduling problem and also um, there are other logistical issues. But yeah. hopefully some of these will reduce to practice. For example, medications to reduce arthritis pain um, has been reduced to practice because those medications 
given at bedtime actually work better in reducing morning pain than the medications given in the morning. So that has led to slow release formulation of many pain medication and general advice that they should be taken at bedtime. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. We know been briefly, what is what is the interaction between the suprachiasmatic nucleus, melatonin, if any, and these other clocks? Is there a relationship or is the SCN and melatonin just there for sleep-wake cycles? Well, we're still learning how SCN regulates um, systemic physiology and metabolism. So SCN neurons uh, don't send long connection to other parts of the brain, but rather they connect they connect to different parts of the hypothalamus. And this is very important because we know that the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal and hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis are uh, two major neuroendocrine axes. Mm -hmm. So SCN um, projects to different parts of the hypothalamus that are part of this HPA or HPG axis. And it uses, SCN uses various neuropeptides for this signaling. Um, for example, arginine vasopressin or vasoactive intestinal peptide. These are the mm -hmm. major ones, and uh, many of the SCN neurons are also GABAergic. Uh, they use GABA as neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. So uh, one idea is SCN neurons use these local projection, local connections to different parts of the hypothalamus and circadian production of these neurotransmitters to convey the um, timing information from SCN to hypothalamic regions, which in turn uh, influence the HPA and HPG axis, which regulate a vast majority of our hormones in our body. Right, right. And the second aspect is SCN may be directly or indirectly affecting core body temperature. Uh, because our core body temperature fluctuates by somewhere between 0.5 degrees centigrade to 1 degree centigrade. And in some animals, it can be even 3 to 4 degrees centigrade. Uh, You're talking about day-to-night day -night transitions. Yeah, yeah day-to-night. Yeah. And that, although it sounds very small, but that temperature fluctuation is enough to thermally entrain or synchronize circadian clocks in different parts of our body. Um, so this is another ah, example where the small okay. temperature fluctuations are very important in entrainment wow. of all these clocks. Um, so that may be a major piece of the, the yeah. interaction then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, there is way too much to cover on the history, on science and practice of time-restricted eating in just one episode. So luckily, we get two. Be sure to join us for part two of the series with Dr. Panda, now available on the Resilient Surgeon podcast page at sps.org. In the second episode, we discuss the practice of the eating method and integrating it into your daily routine. You won't want to miss it. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.